0: Welcome to Big Mood, Little Mood with Danny Lavery. I am the aforementioned Danny Lavery. And with me in the studio this week, not just in the studio, but in my home, in my apartment, looking at me wonderfully across the table is Sophie Lewis, the author of various essays about octopus sex, theoretical screeds about capitalism, and numerous texts about family abolition, including the book Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family, Sophie Welcome to the show.
1: Hello Danny. Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome to the show and welcome to my home. It's so good to see you in my home because I don't have people in my home anymore. It's
1: wild, I know. I'm I'm very privileged to be here and I made it despite having done a little tour of the analogous not your address, address in another borough or whatever it was. But I, I, I actually have decided not to feel embarrassed because I know that New Yorkers love to, uh, you know, feel that their city is very complicated. And, you know, uh, Pennsylvanians like me <laughs> will get lost.
0: If in- anything, I was just impressed that you thought I was a New Yorker. I feel <laughs> like, you know, I just got here myself. Um, true, true. But I'm just so thrilled that you're here. I will never, ever mind anyone being late ever again, because it just Aww. means we get to go places again. Yeah, it is wonderful. And I'm so excited to get to talk to you today. Not least because I feel like we were able to have a really lovely conversation where you had said, I really don't want to just be the abolish the family person. <laughs> Please don't just have me on the show to make me the face of <laughs> abolishing the family. So I'm very excited to, um, I don't know, have the the soft version of a what yeah. do you call it? like. When a when a restaurant has a soft launch, yeah. What's the equivalent of that when it comes to shutting down the family? A soft closing?
1: <laughs> That's a really good question. I mean, I, I think, you know, putting family abolition on an advice show is both a really good idea and delightfully impossible. And and I mean, you know, there's no way you can separate this kind of topic from huge political struggle type issues and huge transformations of political economy. But Um, And probably the person who writes about family abolition is likely to be the person who knows the least how to abolish her own family, if you know what I mean. So I don't know what the soft version is, but you know, um, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm here for it. Yeah. Thanks for being up
0: for it as well. I'm very excited. Not least, I think, because I've been excited to speak with you about this idea of When there's a conversation about abolition of any kind, whether that be prison abolition or family abolition, or I've actually run out of things that I've heard of abolition about. So (laughs) those are the only two that I know of. But I'm interested in, you know, usually the, the first thing one hears about them is some version of, well, we don't mean it literally. Right. Or like, you know, it doesn't mean that. Mm. And um, I hear that enough that I, I I grow suspicious of it. Like, surely somebody means it literally. <laughs> surely a little bit somebody means no prisons at all, or yeah. like no family the way we have known it at all. And so I'm kind of interested to to talk through that a little bit more lately because uh, I I don't myself have specific answers to mm. whether or not someone might mean it literally, or or what it does or does not mean. So. Mm. We'll, we'll get to talk about it in, in a very specific way uh, when it comes to one individual person's individual family, and also, I hope, um, on a larger scale. But listeners, um, in case you're worried, yes, this does mean that by the end of this episode, you're going to have to cut all ties with your own parents, no matter how much you love them. <laughs> Sophie and I will be coming to your house and making sure that you block their numbers, uh, making sure that you throw away any holiday present they've ever gotten you, and, and later we'll be wiping your memories. And that's what feminism is. So, you're welcome. (laughs) You've been warned. With that auspicious beginning, this letter, uh, this one is weighty. um, And so I know you've been thinking about it a little bit today, as have I. I'm looking forward to getting a chance to talk about this one, to be honest, as, as painful as it might seem. The subject here is just where to draw the line. My mom died suddenly when I was eight. I was horrifically abused and neglected by my father for a year until another family member adopted me. I am now in my late 30s, and I don't have a relationship with my father. People in my family know what happened and continue to have a relationship with him. I have been told to be the bigger person and, quote, get over it. My younger sister was not abused and continues to have a great relationship with our dad. I find myself feeling angry and hurt whenever I think about this, and I don't know how to continue to have relationships with people who are so chummy with my abuser. How can I, quote, get over this? How can I reconcile loving members of my family and the anger I feel due to their not taking my trauma seriously? Should I just stop communicating with people who are still friendly with my abuser? That would be my entire family. I don't know what to do, but I know I need to make a change because the sadness and resentment is eating me. Yeah. Oh, Danny. Yeah. Um, you know, I get variations of this kind of question often. Mm. Sometimes it varies uh, in terms of scale, but the the question often remains the same, which is something like a parent, a relative, hurt me profoundly, badly, was able to hurt me with sort of impunity by virtue of their family relationship to me. Um, and the family you know, as a group has kind of closed ranks around the person who hurt me. And and not only is it just that they want to maintain a friendship or a relationship with my abuser, but they want me never to talk about the abuse. They want to pretend that it never happened. um, And they want to sort of act as a buffer around him. Um, And that question of, I still love these people. I don't think my pain would go away if I necessarily stopped talking to all of them, but I also find the nature of this relationship really painful and it feels like it's me against everyone, you know, and what do you do with that?
1: Right. And I mean, yeah, I, I've been mulling it and mulling it and kind of (laughs) getting nowhere in terms of generating brilliant ideas, um, with which to advise this, this person. Um, I feel for them so much and I'm not, Really, you know, in a place where I can go into my own personal uh you know relating uh to the predicament, I know I mean you you know a piece of your personal experience is in the public domain, and I'm not surprised that people contact you all the time, podcast or no podcast to to kind of presumably you know to um to share their experience uh, there's nothing more painful I feel like than than this experience of having people who love you be chummy as this as the letter writer puts it with uh with your abuser i mean there probably are more painful things
0: it's extremely painful yeah yeah, we don't have to make a hierarchy luckily (laughs) no
1: um and i you know i know you don't advocate murder on this show but the you know it was the thing that crossed my mind while i was sitting in traffic earlier it's it thanks for the qualifier on (laughs) the show
0: that's leaving open the implication of like but once he's off the air that's all he ever advises
1: no, it's so miserable, this situation. And I really, I mean, it's its silly to joke about things like that. But, um, you know, I really don't think there is, I would feel equally bad saying, you know, go to therapy or whatever, and, and leaving it at that. I mean, although that would probably be a good idea. But it it's just this structural wagon circling and Gaslighting and belittling and trivializing that is baked into that 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 kind of cultural form of social reproduction. This kind of normalizing, and even the sibling who is sort of having a great relationship with this same person, and you know, you become the problem. Like Sarah Ahmed says, you know, naming the problem makes you the problem, and it, it's it's just an excruciating thing. Um, Do you have any concrete thoughts? I wanted to let you lead on this and here I am talking. Uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I think um, I I would start from a place of this happens all the time. Yeah. Which I I don't know if that would provide the letter writer with much comfort. It it certainly doesn't feel comforting to say, but this is really common. This is uh, more common, I think, than otherwise. I think this is the usual way that most families react to, you know, child abuse, which is to say, I don't know what you're talking about, or just get over it, or you know, not saying anything at all, but making it very clear we love this guy, we think he's fantastic, and um, if you have some sort of weird grudge that we don't care to know more details about, you know, you should sort yourself out. Um, I wish that weren't the case. I wish more families did not do that, but I think this happens more often than it doesn't. And so letter writer, if it is at all helpful to you to think of this in terms of a common and predictable initial group response to anything like an accusation of in-group abuse, it might be a little bit more helpful, at least in terms of thinking of like, this is something to be expected. Um, This is something that can be to a certain degree predicted and there are Things, there are specific and concrete things that I can look for that can inform my decisions rather than just feeling like I, I, I feel completely adrift. Um, so, you know, letter writer, you say that you're in your late 30s. Um, it's not clear to me if you have ever gone any period of time since from your childhood until now where you've been in low or limited contact with your extended family Um, I guess today the sort of mini theme is like soft rollouts, soft launchings. (laughs) Um, One of the things that might be useful to you if you haven't had like a significant period of time where you were letting them sort of recede into the background of your daily life and focusing your attention on getting support from either friends or people in support groups or a therapist or better yet, all of the above. Um, That might be the best way to begin where you're not having actually like the big, potentially really fraught conversation of, I'm not sure that I can have a relationship with you unless and until you acknowledge the ways in which my father abused me. If you don't feel ready for that, if that feels too much to take on right now, just, you know, don't take so many of their calls, kind of don't reach out when you normally might to see how they're doing. Let that fall by the wayside a little bit, not so much that you're going to start getting calls, but enough that you feel like you're devoting less time and energy to them and more time and energy to figuring out where can I get support that I need? Where can I talk honestly to people about what happened to me? And their first response is not going to be, "shh, don't say that. Um, That I think is what you need to focus on first. And when you've been able to start doing that, when you've been able to start having these conversations More frequently. Um, And I would encourage you to look for specifically, in addition to talking to your friends and talking to a therapist, support groups for people who were abused by parents. Um, I don't say that wanting to paint them all with a broad brush. You know, I'm sure you could find groups that were religious, that were secular, that were local, that were um, virtual, that you know dealt with different demographics and different communities. Some of which might include people that you can't stand, um, that may have more or less in terms of either like moderation or support from some kind of group facilitator. So, um, I, I you know think carefully about what kind of group you think would benefit you. Um, be aware that you know you you might run into people who have had similar experiences, but whose response to them you don't want to share or emulate. I don't say any of this promising like, and you're going to meet, you know, nine people that you just feel immediate spiritual kinship with, and they will be your cheerleaders and and take you through every step of the way. I just think that it can be a really useful place if your whole life you have felt like whenever I want to talk about this, I get told mostly to shut up. Yeah. And, and I say all that then saying like your options will include things like Deciding to completely stop contacting your relatives, deciding, I don't think that we're ever going to be able to have a fruitful conversation about this. And so I'm just not going to. And that might mean we never feel as close as they would like me to, but that's the choice I'd rather make. It might feel like saying to them, this happened. It's real. You may choose to stay close to him. I can't dictate that, but you and I need to talk about it at least once. Um, Any of those are all options available to you. And I feel less married to the idea of choosing one over the others than having you prioritize first, really thinking about like, what would it look like if most of my free time was spent thinking about and talking about this on my terms and not theirs?
1: There are people in my life who have a very similar kind of um, narrative of facts um, and who have uh, made the decision to double down on loyalty to the family family. Um, and the ideology of family very, very deeply to the point that, um, well, I mean, you know, you can have a psychotic break that way. In fact, trying to kind of um, hold that kind of contradiction in your, in your heart, but it is an option that, that sometimes seems available, you know, Um, this, this hurt me, but um, there is no alternative to the, to the logic of care um, that is, family um, I'm not ready to identify as a refugee from the family um, it is extremely scary to to contemplate that although you know let a writer if you choose to, to to move in that direction know that there are lots of us around and uh you know whether or not you identify as uh, queer. I I don't think that's in the letter. There is a sort of structurally queer sense in which, um, you know, refugees from the nuclear family are out here, out there, (laughs) where you are in the cracks in this world, sort of looking after each other and developing forms of care and techniques of tenderness that are arguably uh, superior, certainly as good as, you know, what is what tends to be found in in sort of the the naturalized spaces of of, of kinship and property, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, I feel a lot of uh, love and empathy for you. I wonder if there is anguish and rage ahead of you. Whether you can gather people in your life around you to consciously be there to hold that. I mean, sometimes victims of abuse have moments, um, you know, just, just off the top of my head, you know, the the TV series Twin Peaks has a figure at its center, Laura Palmer, who basically is that. And the image of her um, screaming, this kind of snarling scream of anguish is kind of what often comes to mind for me when i think about the moment of of really tapping into the unheard you know the socially uh, silenced and uncared for rage and righteous misery of of the abused uh children of nuclear families so that's not a recommendation so much as a a hope that you know you you ask those not necessarily in your family, but, you know, those who, who could care for you to, to hold you as you, as you perhaps risk accessing that kind of depth of feeling and intensity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have also, I came to Twin Peaks later in life. I didn't start watching any of it until I was in my thirties and I found it shockingly, not just like lovely, but poignant and funny and powerful. And, um, not, not to say that necessarily now is the time to take on that project for this letter writer. Just if at some point you're like, well, I've got, you know, 30 spare hours this weekend and I feel like taking a journey through my own boredom into, you know, the limits of human experience, that might be one thing you could do with yourself.
1: Yeah. I'm definitely team like that is a feminist family abolitionist text Twin, Twin Peaks, I'm definitely, you know, a defender. It's, it's really about how this sh- that the logic of all of this stuff uh, operates,
0: yeah, I, I mean, um one thing that I do feel really strongly about is that is it's useful and worthwhile to advise someone to offer suggestions to to talk about something like whether that's simply distance from one's individual family or the project of the abolition of the family structure, um, that it is not necessary to like list all of one's own traumas or, or go into a lot of details about one's personal experience. So uh, I'm going to try to share some of what my own experience has been because it, it is both true, and I, I've talked about this publicly. I am not in any contact with any anyone that I am related to. Um, I have made it clear that I will not ever be in contact with any of them again. Uh, that's been the case now since, uh, November, 2019. It's a a number of different things. It it was uh, a very painful thing to have to do. It was an incredibly easy thing to do. It has been hard. It's also been one of the best things that I've ever done. Um, it's probably the thing that I am proudest of. Um, even though that it is not something that I normally think about and just feel like calm pride wash over me. Um, but it is an act that I'm very proud of and, um, So I I will try to answer some of these questions from that position. You know, letter writer, you say, I don't know how to continue to have relationships with people who are so chummy with my abuser. And part of what I hear in that is some sense of, I have found it possible, if painful, to maintain these relationships into my 30s. That's not working anymore. And I would encourage you to give yourself permission to think of it in those terms, which is not, I was wrong to have these relationships before, And now I must abjure every moment of fun or connection that I ever shared with any of them. Um, It may simply be true that these people have loved you and they have also done something wrong in minimizing your father's abuse. And you can hold both of those things to be true without saying that meant they were monsters the whole time and that everything was false and fraudulent. You know, you say, how do I reconcile loving them with my anger? I I take your question there to mean how do I experience both of those things? Um, And so I do want to answer that for whatever it's worth. I don't think reconciliation of two opposing ideas is especially necessary. Um, I I promise not to try to like guess what I think Hegel is talking about, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure there's something about dialectics in here. You can just feel two contradictory things and eventually a synthesis will show up and something will work out. Yeah. That's not what Hegel says, I don't think. But my, my point is simply, you can say, I love these people. That love is not necessarily born from respect for their ethical conduct. It's simply the love that I bear for the people I knew first and best. I love them and I'm angry. Um, for a while, I loved them and maintained a relationship that was sort of predicated on my silence. That stopped working. Um, I can no longer offer love that is predicated on silence. Yeah. That, that would strike me as a totally consistent thing to think, feel, and experience even if it also feels incredibly volatile and painful and i can also appreciate letter writer you say you know how do i quote get over this and and what i took again in that was that sense of both why why is it my job to get over this why is everyone telling me that's my responsibility and then also a certain kind of maybe longing is not quite the right word but certainly a sense of Well, this sadness and resentment are exhausting. I'm so tired of being the only angry person in the family. I'm so tired of being apparently the only one who has a problem with this. If I could get over it, you know, I would like to, I would like to put some of this down, but I don't think I can put it down by saying, you're right. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. So I I share, letter writer, that sense of I want some sort of peace. And sometimes it's tempting to think of that as coming from, quote unquote, getting over it. But I also have a strong suspicion that getting over it on your relatives terms would not actually provide you with any peace or any comfort.
1: And not to embarrass him, but letter writer Danny Lavery uh, has written and been very public about the process of, you know, cutting off those ties and doing this project of justice work in some sense. And reading about that is incredibly, um, it's an incredible tonic. It's very, it can be very lifting or it, it may be for you. It certainly was for me. It, it was a, a kind of concrete lesson in a not, not, it wasn't didactic, but it was a, a demonstration that this kind of, you know, as, as you just said, Danny, that you're not trying to square circles you're not trying to reconcile you know whether people who you love uh, you know uh, can simultaneously have abused you Mm -hmm. You those things that's just true you know people people are not exactly good or bad it's it's
0: about doing the right thing I guess I think one thing too that might be especially difficult for this letter writer one of the ways in which I feel almost lucky is not the right word at all but one of the things that I am aware made a real difference in my ability to draw a bright line was that the rupture between myself and my relatives had to do with endangering other people's children. Yeah. It was not about me. Whatever, you know, experiences I myself had as a member of that family, as a child in that family, were not at the forefront when I cut those ties. That had to do with specifically my brother working closely. Um, And without supervision with children, which, uh, you know, last, not last November, in November of 2019, he told me that he was sexually attracted to children. And he also told me that the rest of my family had known for, uh, in some cases, more than a year. Um, And they were aware that he was continuing to work alone, unsupervised, on trips with children. Um, And so that was not about me. That was really easy to go into battle over. And that just was really clear. That's not right. Yeah. And it wasn't about how well do we know him? What do we believe his values are? It was simply like, that's not a safe situation. Yeah. Um, you need to be in treatment. Um, you need to not be alone with the children that you're attracted to. And, you know, whatever organizations you may have been working with need to know about this so that they can investigate. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I, that just felt super straightforward. And one of the things that can be really hard is if you're talking about your own abuse, your own neglect, and you've grown up hearing from, from eight years on, you need to be the bigger person. I just like the idea of telling an eight-year-old to be the bigger person, which is so often what people do when eight-year-olds are abused in the family, um, is grotesque. Yes. And one of the things that's really hard is you don't have that like, well, this is for somebody else. I'm doing this on behalf of somebody else. You're saying, I'm thinking about doing this for me. And what you, letter writer, have experienced from your family is a lot of, well, you're not really worth it. And so- I am very aware of how difficult it can be to say, I need to draw this boundary because I deserved better and I still deserve better. I, I want you so much, letter writer, to be able to make that decision on your own behalf. I think you deserve it. I think it, it will not fix or immediately eradicate your feelings of anger or love or resentment or sadness, but it will at least remove the painful, heavy work of, trying to keep these people happy on their terms. So I just want to, you know, throw in a vote for trying not talking to them. If you've never tried that, um, you know, I think it can be worth it. When I think about my own relatives, um, I can think about what would be the best possible life for them. What would accountability look like? What would a different kind of life look like? And I can wish them safety, health, and guidance. I think all of that is consistent with love. I don't need to feel certain warm feelings in order to want that for them. Um, But I'm also very aware that I cannot give them any of those things in part simply because, you know, I don't have perspective or distance or objectivity when it comes to any of them. So for me, whatever love is, looks like remaining out of touch, not being in contact trusting that if they ever choose to, um, act differently or live their lives on a different basis, there will be professionals and advisors and guidance that they can access. That's not me. And, you know, for my own part, remaining committed to principles of nonviolence. Yes. And that's the best thing that I can give them.
1: Yeah. And you've really given the world a lot, Danny, with, with the way you've been public about that ethically, it's, it's incredibly useful. It's a really useful resource and letter writer, you know, if it, it seems too scary from where, where you are at right now to try this thing Danny's put on the table, sort of if you haven't tried it, you know, try not not contacting them alone. You know, there are people there out there or perhaps already with you who you can bring closer and um, who may be up for making kin with you in a way that will show you that being shown up for is possible. It happens. It, it it in fact is quite common as well. Thank God, right? it's not. You know, the the thing that happened in your in your family is very predictable. You know, to the point of being kind of uh, part of the logic, I think, of of, of that family form. Um, but luckily, people are also always kind of um, sabotaging and and betraying it in a certain way by showing up for each other by doing solidarity by 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 breaking loyalties that are wrong mm-hmm. that are cowardly and toxic um and anti-liberatory so you know just just i hope so much that you let yourself feel some of that and 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 open and risk that vulnerability that then allows you to be shown up for by people because i'm sure there are people out there who who will who will show you what it feels like
0: Yeah. I think one thing that is true is you don't know the positive sides of estrangement until you try it. Or or rather, if there's some that you kind of wish you had right now, like, you know, peace from talking to them, you can imagine that. But until you do it, you can't really envision all the other things that it will make room for because they're, they're hypothetical until they happen. Whereas I think it can be easy to really ruminate on, but if I lose my family, I won't have any family. And you think about like, well, what if on this big holiday, I don't have the people you're supposed to have? Or what if on, you know, uh, you know, fill in your own like cultural touchstones, your own family holidays. But sometimes you don't know how good it can be until you make that room in your life. Um, the last thing I'll say is is really on like a logistical and tactical front. If letter writer, you do decide. To go the route of estrangement, and if and you, you you may decide to do that without saying much. You may decide that you want to try to have a conversation about it with one or some of the relatives that you want to extend that possibility to. You you certainly don't have to, but if you do, I, I just want to flag the possibility that they will at that point bring in certain escalation tactics that are really common when somebody finally says. Actually, I'm not going to remain in this family on the shared delusion that no one ever abused me. Um, You might hear things like, I don't really understand where this is coming from. You seem so angry all of a sudden. Is this connected to something that's going on in your own life? They might try to blame it on a partner of yours, on new friends of yours, on some sense of you have changed. Um, They might attempt to make you feel responsible for the physical or mental health of other relatives. They might suggest that by, you know, withholding contact, you are doing something um, aggressive or hostile. And they might go so far as to make you feel responsible for somebody else's uh, you know, emotional well-being or desire to live. Um, if they do that, that's just write it out of the playbook. That won't make it easy to go through, but I just I, I I would I would want you to know that's something that you can predict that follows certain play lines. you know, again. I don't want to keep keep going back to that old well of just like, what happened to me will happen to you too. But, you know, when I had made it clear, among other things, like this situation requires outside accountability. You have not as a group um, done right. And so I cannot protect this secret for you or just say, hey, you guys fix this. Um, I have to inform outside organizations and they may or may not have to like trigger higher up investigations like that. I'm taking that out of everybody's hands. You know, uh, at that point I was, you know, various friends of mine, my my relatives got in touch with in order to say, um, you cannot report this. Your brother is suicidal. And if you report this, he might not live, which I found really heartbreaking on Particularly on this level, the idea that you would have a person you cared about who you believed to be suicidal, and your response was not, How can I get them help? How can I get them treatment? But it would be to try to corral someone else into not doing the right thing. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad I didn't listen to that. That prediction was not born out, that did not happen. I know other people who have made similar reports, and that did happen. So I don't say that lightly. Sometimes people do make decisions about whether to harm themselves that, um, they want to make relatives or friends or other loved ones feel responsible for. I hope that it doesn't come to that for you, letter writer. Uh, I hope that's not like scary. I don't mean to say like, and like if, and when somebody in your family threatens that they will kill themselves, um, and they call your friends to say that they're going to do it. Here's what you do. I hope that never happens. I hope you never have to use that advice, but in that case, you know, that therapist, that support group, those friends, those people you can actually reach out to and who will actually help you like gain some clarity and just be like, oh, this group of people has developed like a really tortured idea of what the truth is and what the right thing is. And it's only as part of this like shared in-group delusion that these things kind of make sense. Yeah. Like, man, the second I told someone who I wasn't related to about the situation, nobody was confused. Nobody was uncertain. Nobody said you know what, maybe you should let them all keep like developing their secret rules. Um, That seems like a good idea. Nobody whose last name wasn't Ortberg thought that was a good plan. Um, And and one of the things that I felt really (laughs) useful, energizing and freeing about that was realizing this is not a shared sense of reality. This is unique to this family and it requires that sort of family commitment to secrecy, loyalty to the brand above all else in order to flourish. And you do not have to live like that. You do not have to live like this. You may still have to carry around the sadness and the pain of, I wish my relatives hadn't done this to me, but you do not have to live in the world that they want you to live in. I think that's my last thought on this one. Yeah. Amen. Um, I also don't want to talk anymore about my own situation. So we're going to go back to talking about the world writ large. You
1: okay there? How are you feeling? I'm
0: great here. I did just want to take a moment to acknowledge that one of your pieces that I've loved the most recently was your review of Tori Peter's book, Detransition Baby, mm. um, which is very much about the kind of thing we're discussing, which yeah. is this sort of like um, fraught and provisional coming together of three people, one trans woman, one sort of Schrodinger's trans woman who is currently detransitioned and living his aims and leaves open the real possibility that uh, transition again lies in the future. Um, and then a cis woman who's pregnant, um, and the three of them are trying to figure out what can we mean to one another? What's the difference between wishful thinking and true possibility? Um, how mad am I at you for the past and for not being me? Um, and and I loved what you had to say about it. Um, I, I, I loved especially that line that you had about Reese's conviction, um, that like she had this belief that, that cis women who talked about, uh, you know, something as like a sort of burden, in fact, secretly loved it. Um, And I was really glad that you had sort of highlighted that line because it, I I, I really appreciate what Tori does in that book with what people under what circumstances tend to assume that other people are lying when they talk about themselves or their own experiences and like how and when we get that like suspicious feeling and whether or not it's merited or not. Um, I just loved it. Thank you for writing it.
1: Oh, thank you, Danny. Yeah, I uh, I had an even longer version at one point that included uh, a reference to this wonderful essay by the, the theorist Emma Heaney about her experience of doing assisted reproductive technology. It was It's called um, My Year in the Stirrups. Oh, no, mm. it's called Is a Cervix Cis. And it's, it's kind of... My Year in the
0: Stirrups would have been a great... Yeah. Uh, also ran.
1: I think maybe that's the subtitle. Um, And it's, 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 it's the same. It's basically what I, what, what I like about, yeah, sort of thinking these two things together, the, the sort of Emma Heaney sort of experience of pregnancy, ostensibly as a cis woman, but kind of really wondering the extent to which that's a, a static fact about her pregnancy, particularly when she's talking to all the other people in her life who are using in some cases or being flooded, quote-unquote, naturally in other cases by the very same hormones, but for sort of different reasons. And, you know, um, I just like the the way that reading Detransition Baby helped me sort of think about how, yeah, queer and trans and throuple baby-making isn't somehow in any way necessarily anything better or worse or more hopeful or less hopeful than any other kind of baby making. But it's often come to in this kind of especially painful and thoughtful and ruminative way. And yeah, like you say, Reese, the trans woman who desperately wants to be a mother as she, as she imagines it is, you know, truthfully, you know, exclusive you know there is only one motherhood and it's 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 the sort of biological kind Um, and it's not that she has lost that conviction at the end of the novel but I think we have gone on a journey through the novel of realizing that you know that resentment that she's feeling which leads her to distrust cis women who say what is the, she actually says complain complain about the burden of their reproductive capacities secretly cherishing it um you know th- there's an imaginative leap that ev- all the different people make uh and i think you're right to bring up this this sort of question of you know believing each other's desires the the the, the riddle of the other you know this woman who really does not love her uterus uh you know <laughs>
0: And speaks to, I think, certainly to, there are certain rituals of complaint that are often but not universally understood um, as a ritual rather than simply we have all chosen this moment to complain about something. Um, There are certainly ways in which complaining is a ritual way of drawing attention to something one is proud of without being accused of bragging. Um, it, It is easy, I think, if one is familiar with such rituals to assume that is a universal understanding and that everyone enters into it with that same unspoken set of assumptions um that's also not true and so there's often ways in which you know lots of social missteps can come from thinking you are in one of those situations when you are in fact in another um or when you have failed to pro-offer the correct kind of complaint in that moment i think that, not to bring detransition baby into the the universe of mean girls but you know that, that for all that mean girls can do this a little clumsily and and um Anyways, the that scene it. where they they stand in front of the mirror and they they discuss their, their physical attributes they don't like, and you know first the girls are all talking about like uh, you know uh, I'm too fat, my shoulders are too manly, this sort of classic like mm-hmm. I'm not womanly, I'm not shaped right, I'm not thin. Those are the things that I need to be. And and Lindsay Lohan's character attempts to join in but doesn't know the rules, so she says I have really bad breath in the morning. Um, she just goes for like you know animal disgust, which is just like the thing that kind of all bodies do, but one doesn't talk about in, in the same way that might one freely talk about one's shoulders in such a situation. Um, and it's just sort of immediately met with a combination of like blank and somewhat disgusted stares. Like you didn't play the game right. right? Um, and and in such a moment, you know, the, the audience might very well assume this is not necessarily merely a, a series of complaints out of nowhere, but a series of like socially acceptable ways of either asking for reassurance or of delineating like, what you're not allowed to be.
1: And I mean, you know, as I try and lay out, um, you know, in, in several of my, like, things that I've tried to express publicly, written or otherwise, I, you know, I'm not at all... Uh, anti-pregnancy, and I, hopefully this review makes that clear as well. I, I, I sort of think anyone who wants to do that kind of extreme sport should be, you know, uh, equipped, empowered to do so. Certainly, including trans women, you know. And I, 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 too, I, I want Reese to be able to do, you know, the process of placentation. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a grisly kind of extraordinary thing. I mean, some people have ecstatic you know spiritual experiences of it and or at the same time also you know terrible injurious boring and, and 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 but you know it is kind of a a beautiful meditation the the novel as a whole on how Reese is already a mother the, the sort of cliche of of you know you don't have to give birth to be a mother that that uh, a queer black feminist tradition of poly maternal lesbian feminist sort of uh yeah a child has many mothers kind of uh, in a certain tradition of gay and lesbian liberation and and so on from the 60s onwards. But, you know, she really is. It showed, the novel shows you that she really is already a mother, but she completely refuses to dignify that with, well, I mean, and, and it's not to say, you know, she, she is furious, in fact, that someone might tell her that that's that that 's maybe enough that that could be enough mm-hmm. and and that 's very relatable too, you know you know get out of here with your shitty queer kinship spiel, I think is the phrase right yeah. well i don 't I think I added the uh, the expletives, but um but I think yeah there 's a very kind of sort of universalism from below, hopeful, broken, kind of uh, horizon that I, that I found very poignant. You know, we are, we are all kind of in this existential condition that Reese is in of sort of not, not really getting to have and be like exactly what we, what we want while at the same time actually having such a rich, you know, I mean, okay. I'm not It is of course, you know, we're not all in it together, but, but Reese has all these comrades kind of reaching out to her saying, you know, we've got you you know we've we've got you come back to us you know you have mothered us let us let us kind of be mothered by you and mother you too and she's she's convinced that there's this kind of holy grail of biological um you know partum that that is out there
0: i want to make sure that we have time to at least very briefly get to that question i promised at the top of the show which is surely not really when ah. it comes to something like family abolition uh knowing full well that it is impossible to reduce this into a 60 second soundbite would you give me a 60 second soundbite of what you mean by family abolition
1: well danny since you already brought up hegel <laughs> no but seriously though um abolition you know yes really but let's be you know let's 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 learn what that word actually means we don't know it's a it's a movement thing it's a abolition in in the you know hegel german thing is about a simultaneous preservation and destruction and that's not it. that's not a glib kind of cop-out kind of thing to say it's really you know it's to understand that Abolition does not just mean destruction and negation and sort of poof, things vanish. Things are already all tangled up. You can't do that. That is not how history works. So paradoxically, you know, what it would mean to sort of stop organizing the making of life, of lives outside of this family model would be to preserve something that is working, right? There is something that is working because we are still here. We're here, you know, particularly those on the margins, those kind of refugees, as I called them earlier, right? That there is beautiful skill and 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 liberatory love flowing amongst us, gluing us together and and turning us into beings who can dream about revolution. And that that is not completely outside of the family. That's a little red thread running through the family. It's like a kernel or something, the nucleus of nuclear, I don't know. And so what would what, what it would mean, I suppose, to pursue that very rash, top of my head, like, metaphor, bizarrely never come across before. It's like, what if you did the nuclear explosion of that? It would be a sort of simultaneous preservation and destruction of, of the, the love and care that we have in the present so that everyone would have it, right? Because currently it's a it's an organized scarcity. It's an organized austerity. It's a kind of blackmail for that reason anyway.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I said I was done bringing it all back to my own particular situation, but I I do think of, um, you know, November, 2019, um, and, and I did not experience what I chose to do, which was cutting ties with my family as well as, um, removing their ability to keep a secret, making a decision that would in effect force them into open accountability with various communities, whether they wanted to or not. um, I was not saying, and I don't say, kinship is bad. Every experience we've ever had together is bad. You know, everything about this is as bad as the choices you have been making for the last 18 months. Um, But yeah, it did did have to do with if the only way that this organization, that this structure can continue to exist is by demanding my continued uh, joining in the secrecy um, sharing in your compact, in your in your decision to hide some things from people outside the family, to have different sets of rules for people within and without the family, um, I won't I won't be in it. I, I I don't I don't want to, and and so it was not this idea of anything like any of the forms of relation that have existed here um, must be blasted off the face of the earth so much as just um, this is not the right way to live. Um, there's got to be something better than this. There's going to be something more than this. You shouldn't be able to have this kind of power over other people simply because you have decided that your only loyalty on this earth can be to one another, a different set of rules for you, the Ortbergs, and then a different set of rules for everybody else. Um, And, you know, in some ways, I feel like I do get to keep a version of the, the people that I believed them to be or wanted them to be. Um, and one of the things that I can sometimes kind of remind myself in that moment of like, I think there's a version of my mother who could have been proud of that choice. Yeah, I I, I can't access her right now, certainly, and and she did not herself make those choices. But when I think about the way that she tried to raise me, in some ways, I think you know, right. you, you made a kid who was not going to make the wrong choice on that day. Unfortunately, you you didn't make the right choice, and and, and um. You weren't solely responsible for the ways in which I turned out as an adult, but there is a weird sense of, in some version of the world, there's a version of that where she could be proud of that. I think um, it doesn't require, you know, my doing what she wants me to do, uh, and it and it doesn't include our our ever being in contact again. Um, and uh, all of this, by the way, is very consistent with. An absolute With Hegel, right? Because what Hegel say,
1: would say is that I, your family produced its own grave
0: diggers. Ooh, <laughs> so. I lo- okay, now I want to read Hegel. Shoot, if he says stuff like that, that's cool. <laughs> um, uh, I thought you were going to say hatred. Uh, um, and I was like, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, because, it you know, I, I have been, I think, kind of focusing on the sort of like big picture Uh, values here and it is also true that like with all of this it feels like every day I sort of like have someone strap a backpack full of rage onto me um, and I still have to carry that around that would be present no matter what it's simply a question of you know what do you do with a backpack every day um, there's a lot of different things you can do with the backpack. So all of that is present as well, but yes.
1: Liberal culture is very, very like, um, sort of allergic to, uh, yeah, the idea of hatred and, and rage ever having a role in, uh, the, the waging of, of, of justice, of, um, care of love. Right. But it's, it's of course, you know, hatred of the, you know, of, of capitalism or if you like, if you if you don't want that, you know, just of of abuse of of mm-hmm. of um, you know exploitation of uh, cowardice and so on that drives the kind of loving you know difficult sort of um, movement that you that you've embarked on, um, and I'm proud with you, yeah.
0: No, I I appreciate that too. And I think about that, especially in the context of that first letter, which is, you know, you got to be the bigger person. You got to get over it. Um, Absolutely. I don't want anger or hatred to be the only feelings I experience on a given day. And I often find them quite tiring. I sometimes don't like them. I sometimes would rather be rid of them. Um, But often I can experience anger or rage or hatred as important things. You know, a, a lot of what I came to know in November of 2019 Merits hatred yeah. and rage and anger. Mm-hmm. That is an appropriate response to a massive series of of wrongs. Yeah, um, And so I, I can also be grateful for those things because they enabled me to do necessary and important things and things that, um, you know, I, I would hope would be accessible and available to anyone in similar situations. But I, I think one of the ways in which I actually felt really uniquely well-situated to offer up... Um, a sort of judgment was, you know, I know exactly the, for- the the forces that you were faced with. I know exactly what choices were available to you. Um, and I was not tempted to make yours for even a minute. Yeah. And so one of the things that I just felt really like well-suited to say once was just, I have nothing but contempt for the choices that you have made. I don't want to make them. Sophie, thank you so, so much for coming and talking about all of this with me today. I realize it's heavy and fraught and you were also battling a a serious allergic reaction because (sighs) all of the trees in Brooklyn are conspiring to kill you.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I've been doing my best. I sound
0: much sort of gruffer and sexier usually
1: or perhaps less.
0: You sound like you've just been through the mill, which is always sexy. Thank you so, so much.
1: It's been great. I mean, it's been powerful. It's been hard. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday.
1: What's in the cardboard box in your kitchen? Is it the fruit that you were waxing magical about on Twitter
0: a while back? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. What's in the box in the kitchen is green chestnuts. Oh. Not green chestnuts. I'm sorry, green walnuts.
1: Yeah, that's not what it was.
0: I'm pickling green walnuts.
1: There was there was a thing you said you had found. It made it made sour you sour cherries. No, something i would never heard of.
0: No, you've definitely heard of red currants. You're British. Yeah, no,
1: no, no. Yes, I have. I have. Why don't you have currants here?
0: In the States? Yeah. Uh, I don't think they grow very well here. I do occasionally find them now that I'm on the East Coast, but they were vanishingly rare on the West Coast.
1: It's the best jam. It's the
0: best fruit. I love it. Every (laughs) time I see it every summer, I go absolutely wild, and I just buy as much of it as I possibly can.
1: But really, this isn't ringing any bells. I think you had tweets about a magical thing. You found a... A grocery store where you'd you, that had it. You brought it back. There was a text about it. it I, I'm I having a lot visual
0: about food, you so that unfortunately doesn't it was
1: fleshy as beautiful. I mean, you, you cut into all, yeah, fruit, I know, I you? know, but it was it was poet poetry.
0: To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.